0: From an outside perspective, restaurants are the perfect getaway. Great food, inviting atmosphere, comforting environment. It's an all around fantastic time for friends and family alike. Though it can be beautiful and enriching from the inside perspective as a guest, one doesn't see the hardships and stressors of creating a wonderful experience. Every restaurateur goes through struggles and challenges that could make or break them. This podcast aims to explore that, pulling back the curtain and understanding what it's truly like to run these establishments, as told by those who do it. I'm Justin Warner, and you're listening to Resto Talk, a podcast brought to you by Touch Bistro. Who are you, and what are you doing here?
1: Uh, hello, my name is Claire Chan. I'm the owner-operator of Barbo. Barbo is a cocktail bar and restaurant located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I also own and operate a small cafe chain in Manhattan as well called The Elk. We have three locations, all located in downtown Manhattan.
0: Wow, wow, wow. Uh, It is no easy feat to do anything, even get out of bed in New York, let alone (laughs) to run two different concepts. And the neighborhood that you're talking about, Williamsburg. Williamsburg is one of the weirdest, in my opinion, places on earth in that Gosh, uh, I lived in in that vicinity and used to party and hang out in Williamsburg around 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I had heard of its legend before that. And in the past, I don't know, 20 years, uh, Williamsburg has changed so, so dramatically. Yeah, it has. (laughs) You you experienced that?
1: Yeah, it's um, it still is changing. I feel like throughout the pandemic, everything's changed. But Williamsburg has like a brand new face. I feel like we've reopened and obviously are in full capacity like everywhere else. And I hardly recognize some of the people coming in the doors, which is, which is a great thing for us, but also just interesting to experience. People are asking me, how long has the bar been open? And, and I, it just feels like not that long because of this kind of brand new rebirth we've had.
0: Got it. So for somebody that hasn't been to Williamsburg, can you describe it?
1: Yeah, so it's um it's an interesting place as you alluded to Justin cuz it's a lot of young people having fun mixed with of course the people that have lived there for years. There's a big Polish community and the architecture is really interesting. It's kind of like early late late 1980s to 90s architecture. So it's not particularly pretty, I would say, not like the rest of New York City. But it is, has amazing restaurants and bars. It's home to, I think, like some of the top talent in, in New York City in terms of people trying things, innovating, testing, and then certainly the, the audience, the captive audience to go along with that. A lot of young people with high standards and high tastes. So we, we see that with our guests that are dining with us at Barbo as well.
0: I love that. So let's talk about how does one end up in Williamsburg? Because (laughs) the first time I went to New York, I forget what I was doing there. I think a lady friend at the time was scouting some colleges or something. And I said, fine, I am going to a venue in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, because a DJ that I've idolized for years is playing there. Yeah. And I had... Uh, his name was Errol Alkin. This is way back in the day. Way okay. back in the day. I, I was so young, so dumb. And that was when Williamsburg still was like very underground. We're talking like pre Vice moving in, mm. pre Whole Foods, pre Apple Store now. Apple store. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I think everybody says, Oh, it was here before the Apple store. Cool. <laughs> hipster.
1: I think I think the word hipster actually originated in in Williamsburg too.
0: Yeah, I think so too.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just telling.
0: <laughs> yeah. So at, at that time it was a Mecca, but you're not originally from New York, are you?
1: No, um, I actually grew up in Vancouver, BC, west coast of Canada. So I moved to New York about 12 years ago and really wanted to kind of infuse my background or just like experiences and way of doing things, I suppose, from my Canadian roots into both Barbo and the Elk. So yeah, really, really proud of that. Growing up in such a beautiful place like Vancouver
0: yeah, so I've never been to Vancouver, but I've certainly seen a lot of content about Vancouver, and it seems like you have you know certainly some big cityness to it and certainly plenty of diversity, of course, New York being known for that. Mm-hmm. But what do you think are the the major differences? because like New York, when I was there, you get in this mindset that like you're never going to see a Another, like it, you'd have feel like you have to drive a thousand miles just to get away from anything, if that makes sense. Whereas yeah. I, when I think of Vancouver, I feel like, I don't know, waterfalls and, you know, <laughs> coniferous trees. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, Vancouver is, be- Vancouver is beautiful. We're, we're, we're so lucky. We have like the mountains mixed in with the city, mixed in with the coastline. So grew up with that access. And that really is something that I do miss living in New York for sure. But I tried to kind of actually with our design, I worked with a husband and wife team when we, when we built and designed Barbo. Before we came in there, it was actually a woodworking shop, super raw space, and which was exciting because we could kind of just apply our image or, or the, 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 the opportunities were endless with such a raw space. And given that I wanted to infuse my background from the Pacific Northwest, we did a lot of concept work around the coastline of BC. So we did incorporated a lot of the colorways, like how the BC coastline kind of has this stripped colorway of almost like an off green from like the moss and the grays and the dark woods and stuff. So we kind of, we kind of tried to infuse some of that coastline color palette into the design, as well as just some of the shapes of the ocean, because that connection to nature is something that's so important to me as growing up Growing up in British Columbia, so really, really tried to bring that in with the design of Barbo.
0: I like that. Maybe relates to that. Why New York?
1: I mean, New York is the best. I know that you, <laughs> you maybe don't feel the same way, Justin, but New York is just so full of acceptance, opportunity, different personalities, and with all of that comes just the best of the best. I think. I mean, not to sound cheesy, but really, like if you can make it in New York, then it's it's pretty impressive. Every time I leave the city and come back, I'm always just like struck with how much I love the city and how inspired I feel while, while I'm here. So that's why New York.
0: Believe it or not, I agree. I, I do believe New York is the best. But, you know, there is this other lifestyle where you have enough space for a lazy boy recliner, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I felt as though while I was in New York, it was an incredible place to realize what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. Like I, I I don't like saying big leagues because big leagues is not enough competition, and like big leagues doesn't imply that there is always someone in New York who is not only doing it better than you, but they're doing it so much better than you. They're like you know putting your idea out like a like a. The last part of whatever you thought was the greatest thing. Yeah. And I love that. And I feel like the New York presents itself as, of course, challenging and a unique, I won't say difficult system to grapple with. But at the same time, if you can hang, like the amount that you can learn just from walking down two city blocks and the ideas and culture that you can be exposed to and the amount of times that, like, your world viewpoint could be shattered in a day, you know, oh, yeah. is just so tremendous. And I, I feel like if you feel like you need to grow, go to New York.
1: Yeah. I mean, to, to your point, the quality of life is, is always something that is a challenge. But it is so true. I was doing this walking tour the other day of New York just because I've always been... I've always wanted more information about, the, about the, this great city that I live in. So I signed up for this walking tour with this guy named Keith York City. He's amazing. He's so knowledgeable and he's bringing me around this neighborhood that I that I live in for 12 years and he's telling me all this this history and and it was like just so mind-blowing the richness of history and how the city developed and I don't know, I found it just so it gave me so much life because it was like this city has been the birthplace of millions and millions of people and entrepreneurs and followed their, their rich history throughout their lives of ups and downs. And uh, I don't know, there's just something really, really inspiring about that. And yeah, I, I don't know. It kind of gave me shivers just walking through, through the city like with all of this, this history.
0: Got it. Yeah. So how did you get started in restaurants? Because... Yeah, I you don't seem to be too haggard or broken. You haven't complained <laughs> once yet.
1: <laughs> well, there's still time. I yeah, I, I actually come from a background in retail and in fashion. I moved to New York to pursue that and worked in fashion for a couple of years and did not see a future in that industry. I was 27, 28 at the time, kind of going through that I always refer to it as the the Saturn return. I don't know how familiar you are with astrology, but I'm a nerdy astrologist. So I was going through some, just looking at myself and figuring out where I wanted to go next. And- Is this
0: similar to existential angst?
1: I'm sure it has many similarities to that. Yeah, let's call it that. Let's call it that for, for the commonality. Existential angst, experiencing a lot of that. And hospitality restaurants were just kind of something that always- spoke to me even from a young age. Like I remember being a toddler, my parents bringing me to hotels and just kind of being so blown away by the little things. Like we'd come back to the room and our bed was turned down and and the light, there was a little note and mints on the pillow. And it was just like something that always drew me in. So I kind of turned to that during my existential angst period in my late twenties. And I just figured, you know, why not just just try something out and the idea of a coffee shop was something that was like seemed digestible for me like okay I can do this you know it's a small space etc which is true but doesn't necessarily mean it comes with small problems but um,
0: it's so true I when you say <laughs> oh I start I thought I'd start with a coffee shop I'm like yeah on paper you've got <laughs> coffee milk water tea <laughs> But like the variations and variables and pure permutations, you know, that can come from such simplicity totally. is insane. Like it's well,
1: and and I can't do anything simple. So like oh, <laughs> we have a huge food menu as well at the elk, and we have retail goods for sale. So, anyways, a point being, it was a learning experience and kind of just like taught me a lot about the industry. It was like a full education going through opening my own operation and Four years into that, I looked at a new concept, which was cocktails as the foundation for the cuisine in that, like, you know, we have their cocktail offering and on top of that, people are able to order food and design a meal or just have a bar snack and um, like kind of that gastropub or neo-bistro style dining. And yeah, that's kind of what brought me to Barbeau.
0: Amazing. So, you know, we have to talk about it. Because it's probably the biggest event since mayonnaise was discovered. The pandemic Mention it briefly that uh, there's been this sort of rebirth. But if I'm doing the math right, you were what? Not even two years old before pandemic hit.
1: Yeah. Well, so we just a precursor, we are like a hidden restaurant. So from the street side, you see like a very small, narrow storefront. And you walk through that storefront. It used to be a coffee shop. We uh, we have since closed the coffee shop daily, but it operates as our entrance, basically, to the back bar. So, given COVID and everything, and people not feeling comfortable indoors for quite some time, this obviously just hit us pretty hard. So, yeah, we were we were two years old when COVID hit. We were kind of hitting some sort of stride. We with not without our issues, um, mainly margins and cash flow and, and staffing. But COVID gave us the opportunity to, to really reset. And it doesn't feel like we're four years old. Let me just put it that way. Like It feels like we are, we are young again. And people... Whether or not the neighborhood has also just changed over also, which is probably true. Yeah. Like I said earlier, it's just um, like brand new faces coming into the restaurant.
0: I see. What was the biggest challenge? I can only imagine, you know, being an ex-New Yorker, I was here in South Dakota. I actually started both of my concepts within the past two years, and I did it because my alternative cash flows dried up. They were in mostly food television. And in South Dakota, we didn't really have any rules whatsoever. It was the Wild West, Uh for better or worse. But, you know, I know I can literally tell you people that I know I've not put on a mask, period. Wow. But you know in New York there's this image and I think sometimes it's accurate of like you're living on top of each other. I mean how did you say, stay sane during all of this because other than a few friends who I checked in with periodically because I I knew him well and I knew him to be tough, resourceful, etc. All of them had jobs, none of them owned anything and that's a big difference. So, you know, how how did you plan on going down with the ship or how did you captain it through?
1: Well, first of all, I, that's so interesting that you started your concepts during COVID because I think that that's kind of been some of my strategy as well is just like when the going gets tough, the tough gets going and, and like, that's just what it was. It's, it's like something hits you and you're like, I don't really have a choice and let's go. Like this is like owning something as you know, is, is just like constantly putting out fires and of course, you know, having fun along the way, hopefully and enjoy and Finding purpose in that, but it is a lot of problem solving, and this was just one of those things. It was like constant problem solving, and I don't know. I I, I actually feel like I feel like I kind of thrived in it a bit, just because it it like piqued my interest so much. Just to not, I mean, I, that that obviously takes away from the fact that it was awful for so many people, and the business suffered greatly, and all of that. Okay, like we we all know that those are givens, but. I feel like it was an opportunity to really grow myself as an owner and a leader. And I think I rose to the occasion. And so I'm super proud of that. I'm super proud of the staff that stuck with me through it, even though it was a scary time. And and it was like that group mentality and teamwork that really like kept kept us going and kept us sane, as you said, like it just was like we had each other and we had to kind of just keep it moving.
0: Yeah. I worked through uh, the recession in midtown Manhattan. I imagine you were just maybe just getting in New York, like post-recession.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: But in, in high-end midtown fine dining, we knew there was going to be a recession before anyone knew there was going to be a recession because, you know, the, the $2,200 Wednesday lunch Bordeaux drinkers were like, no, water's fine. Tap. I insist. <laughs> The the restaurant, you know, it was nothing, nothing compared to COVID. But restaurants of that caliber all started to kind of collectively panic and everyone had to try and figure out how they were going to keep their high end standards, but also cut costs and understand that if you know you're not selling that $2,200 bottle of Bordeaux on Wednesday, you better rethink your Wednesday model. (laughs) I, I know what you're saying. And I think that restaurants specifically, as, as I made the uh, metaphor of many times, you know, it, it is a little ship. Sometimes it's a dinghy. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, a luxury yacht. Sometimes it is a cruise ship. But ultimately, when you're all in for something together, sometimes a crisis indeed can actually can actually help.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's been so many, so many learning moments. And, and I think we are better for it in the end.
0: Got it. So speaking of learning, and speaking of weathering storms, now that you've done all that, you've had your tires exceptionally kicked. What are the goals? Where do you want to go?
1: Well, I think, uh, yeah, things feel like really back to normal. And, and by that, I mean, big group gatherings. This holiday season's huge for us. Lots of parties and buyouts and stuff like that, which is just great for business. So that's, that's good to see. I mean, I'm just getting through that and, and kind of like figuring out how we can do things better for our business, for our staff, for our guests, like better always, I think, trying to constantly improve that. But I think big picture, um, I'd love to expand out our offerings a little more, be it through catering or at the elk, kind of more locations, more community building. I think that these days, community can come in so many different ways. And like restaurants are such a hub for that when you have your, your regulars, even through, through staff too. I mean, there's such a strong community in that. And, and at, at the Elk, we kind of do a lot of brand partnerships and, and stuff like that. So I think growing that community is the bigger goal and kind of figuring out our reach. And with that, maybe doing something with it. I mean, like making the world a better place if we have some sort of influence in our small community then let's use it for something that's going to help because it's if anything we've we've seen some pretty crazy things over the last years and i'd like to just use my time and energy and and the restaurant's energy to doing something that's really good for the world
0: i like that i don't think a lot of people who are not in this business look at restaurants as being... I think people see them as like oh, a community hub or a nice gathering space. Mm. But I don't think a lot of people see that big picture connection when you're looking at not just numbers, not just trends, and not just demographics, but of course, all of those. But when you step back and you look at the vibe, and, and you see who is naturally attracted to your efforts, what kind of people enjoy, what kind of people leave a review, what kind of people Compliment you, what kind of people do everything. Uh, you know, it's like a little sandbox or jungle gym, you know. It and is, like,
1: it totally is.
0: You see how people play. And when I say play, I don't mean like kids, but you know, restaurants are a place well, of leisure. You know,
1: sometimes, sometimes you can won't be able to tell the difference.
0: <laughs> it's really true. And so I think they are a great social experiment. And then also the information that one can get from that can be priceless. And I think a lot of people that are not in it, and also not in it to win it, don't take advantage of that information. But I will also say that I don't think a lot of people understand the, the cultivation of an image and of that community. And you know, you can put one thing on a menu that when someone reads it, turns them off. They don't even have to eat it. They, mm-hmm. they can turn them off from the entire experience. You could put webbed goosefoot on the menu at a restaurant in South Dakota, people die. Pretty common in, in Chinatown in New York. You know, right, people would right. be wild. So I'm kind of trying to echo here that whether people look at a restaurant and think of it as being a sort of powerful entity, it is mm-hmm. because of the way it harnesses community and like minds and so on and so forth. And it seems like you were saying, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. If we've got this power, let's use it for good.
1: Yeah, exactly. And even if that's just like with the way you're running your business and the choices that you make on a day-to-day level, I feel like just kind of that philosophy is something that I would I would like to filter down in whatever way I can. Restaurants are so vibrant. And everyone... That's the one thing we have in common, right? As like people is that we all... Like to dine, and we like we have to eat first of all. But it's like the that shared experience; it really does bring people together.
0: I got to say, one of the most magical things that ever happened in the last few days of my restaurant in New York. uh, It was in Bed Stuy, just south of you. Mm -hmm. We got a blip on our Google News alert feed thing, and it was a New York Times wedding announcement. And somebody they had just casually mentioned that their first date was at our joint. And it was some New York, like, now power couple or whatever. And they had their first date at our restaurant. And that made it into the wedding announcement. And I was like, well, okay, my work here's done. You know, like, (laughs) fine, I did one good thing. Uh, You know, like, it, it could have gone totally off kilter. Like, I was responsible for that. Like, of course, their own ability to play nice and their own natural attraction to each other. But man, you know, I'm a big fan of the Marvel show, What If? What if I didn't? (laughs) <laughs> like a, a totally different outcome could happen yeah. there, you know? It's
1: so true. It's so true. That's just like that's just straight heartwarming, honestly. Like for someone to have their beginnings at your restaurant for what could be a lifetime together, that's that's beautiful.
0: Well, one thing I wanted to ask about because it seems like your restaurant is very nimble. You can be a cafe, you can be a cocktail bar, you can have a menu. And I took a look at the menu and the menu looks pretty bonkers in all of the great ways it definitely had me curious as uh, someone who is jaded by menus <laughs> where does that sort of where does the culinary input come from because we talked to a lot of chefs we talked to a lot of managers and a lot of people have gone to school for these things or they've studied them relentlessly or so on and so forth so how do you work on that food part
1: it's a good question i am um, i'm lucky because when we opened in 2018 i was fortunate to Come across a chef. Her name's Gemma. She's current day head chef at Barbo, and she stayed with me throughout the whole four years. And so it's just, she kind of really does set the tone for a lot of the food direction. But it is a conversation between me, her, and our GM, All, uh, just constant fluidity with what, what we're seeing people react to, but also what we want to represent, but also what people want, what, what will they want in the future. What's working for us? How do we reduce waste? Like it's just all the things. And I think, but from from the perspective of the food identity, it's kind of all of us. And Gemma's certainly running the show there with her background. She's a she's a native New Yorker and grew up in Queens, so she had a lot of exposure to Asian cuisine as well. So between her and myself, we're we're always trying to infuse. Asian ingredients into our food, but in ways that are approachable and maybe unique and lots of ingredients that people are going to be like, what's that? And then we can have the opportunity to kind of explain it to them. And yeah.
0: Well, uh, I love that you can collaborate like that. Sometimes I think that it takes a lot for, you know, restaurants are places that generally there, there are no real long games, right? Like, you say, I have a plan. Let's see if it works. And if it doesn't work by like, you know, Thursday at 535, you have 100 people on your staff that are saying your plan sucks, chef. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it's not like a let's wait and see sort of thing. It's like, a, is it popping or is it not? It's and true. so I find that that makes it a little difficult to collaborate. Sometimes you need to have somebody that, you know, in the corporate world, they say, you got to fail fast, you know, when you're, mm-hmm. you're trying new things. And I think it's remarkable that you have the personality and ability to collaborate and produce incredible results. On that, and on the note of incredible results, when you get an article in Vogue, how does that make you feel?
1: Well, I think PR, like just putting myself out there is something I've had to learn over time. It was something I was not so comfortable with when I was 28 and opening the Elk. But I've come around just, I think, from a personal level to really just be proud of of what i've created and and vogue is like come on that's just like the cream of the crop in in the fashion world and i think even beyond fashion world but so i think yeah for me it's it's an incredible honor i guess it's an acknowledgement of what we're doing and that what we're doing is is on the right track and it it feels good it feels really good
0: that's good do you have any advice for young entrepreneurs or restaurateurs or people that want to get their feet wet in this wonderful world of food and hospitality.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that creating something in hospitality is not it's not definitely not easy. So there's there's risks involved, but I really believe that if you ha- if you're feeling some sort of calling towards it, then you've got to follow it because you just never know where it's going to take you and don't be like unnecessarily risk taking, but and and again, that's given the fact that this business is just filled with risk. But I think that exploring your callings and exploring the ideas that you have is just something that's super important. And so do it with support and ask for help and ask questions and do your research when you need to, but definitely follow, follow that inspiration.
0: I love that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your assuredly uh, busy schedule to chat with us. And uh, if you ever find yourself in South Dakota, where you can get a 3000 square foot restaurant for $3,000 a month, give a yell.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I definitely will. Thank you, Justin.
0: Thank you for listening to Resto Talk, a podcast brought to you by Touch Bistro. I'm Justin Warner. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, and we'll catch you on the next one. Bar Bow is located at 61 Wither Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. For more information, visit their
1: website at bowbrooklyn.com.